The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, that eat, the, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. It's very tempting to try to make God conform to our expectations. It's tempting to think that he should be tame and understandable and never scandalous, never surprising. It's tempting to think that that's who God should be, that really he should be made in our image rather than we made in his. Our gospel lesson this morning does a lot to dispel that notion that God should somehow be tame and never surprising, that he should never be scandalous, should never catch us off guard, should never do things that we wouldn't do. Our gospel lesson this morning throws all of that out the window. Hopefully, hopefully you were surprised by some of the things you heard in our gospel lesson. We're going to talk about them in order, and we should start with this. There's Jesus in the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's surprising. It's surprising that Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon because there are Gentiles there, not Jews. Foreigners who worship false gods, people who have never set foot in the temple, and in fact, people who should have been wiped out, eradicated long ago. God gave instructions to the people of Israel that when they entered the promised land, when they entered into the land that was to be their home, flowing with milk and honey, they were supposed to defeat all of God's enemies there. They were to destroy their altars, wipe them out so that they would not be misled, so that God's people would not be misled by false gods. But the people of Israel didn't do it. They didn't complete the task that God had given to them, and so there were some Canaanites left in the land, left in the area of Tyre and Sidon, those two big cities. There were some Canaanites left there who should never have been there in the first place. It's surprising that Jesus goes there and that there are people living there still worshiping false gods. And so, of course, it is also surprising that this woman appears in our story at all. This Canaanite woman is standing before Jesus, calling out to him, crying for mercy, but she should never have been there in the first place. Her people were supposed to be gone long ago. That is surprising. What's not surprising, however, is that she is suffering. What's not surprising is that her daughter is oppressed by a demon. 
I think we often make a mistake when we suppose that this world, this life, though it is beset by sin, we suppose that it should never involve suffering. And so the questions that people ask about theology, about God, they usually are phrased in some way like this. How can a good God, a good and gracious God, allow people to suffer the way that they do? The better question to ask is this. How can a just God, a righteous God, let us suffer so little? How can a righteous God, who is perfect and holy, allow sinful creatures like you and me to live? Why has he not destroyed us? Why has he not sent us to our fate, to our graves, immediately? Why do we not suffer more than we do? It is not surprising that any of us suffers, because we suffer on account of sin. The wages of sin is death. We should expect far more suffering than we experience in this life. That is the real question. Why do we suffer so little? It is not surprising that this woman comes before Jesus suffering in this way. It is not surprising that her daughter is oppressed by a demon. It is not surprising, least of all, because the Canaanites were wicked people. This is why God wanted the Israelites to drive them out of the land. They worshipped false gods. They lived for themselves. They mocked God's people. They attacked them. They would have nothing to do with true religion, with the worship of the true God. And they led God's people astray. It's no wonder. It's no wonder this woman suffers. It's no wonder that any of us suffers. Knowing what's in our hearts, knowing that out of our hearts comes sin and every kind of evil, it is no wonder. And so it is, of course, not surprising either, really not surprising, when this woman comes to Jesus and begs him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, is not really that surprising that he does not answer her. Maybe it was shocking to you. It's shocking every time I hear it. It is not the Jesus that I expect in this story, the Jesus who says things like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy. My burden is easy, he says. But not to this woman. To this woman, when she comes to him with her suffering, crying for mercy, pleading with him, he answers her, not a word. It surprises us because we know something about Jesus. But then again, so often we try to shape Jesus in our own image. Has he done something wrong by refusing to answer this woman? Why should she have any right to mercy? Come to think of it, why should any of us? Why should any of us expect, when we cry out to Jesus, that he will be merciful to us? What right do we have to claim his mercy for our own, much less this woman to whom God's mercy was not promised? What claim does she have to the favor that God was giving to his people, to Israel? What right does she have coming to Jesus. It's no wonder that he is silent towards her. I think that what happens next in the story is that the disciples are a little bit embarrassed by this whole situation, probably in the same way that you and I would be embarrassed. It's a little unclear just what they're asking Jesus to do when they say, send her away for she is crying out after us. But it seems to me that they are asking her, asking Jesus to heal her daughter, fix her problem, send her away, just give her what she wants. This is embarrassing us. You're capable. You're mighty. You're God. You're the son of David. Heal her and send her away. We're tired of her crying out after us. They're embarrassed by the situation. 
They want Jesus to be like them. To heal people just because it bothers them that they're suffering. To help people because it irritates them to have them crying out after him. That's not who Jesus is. And so he presses the matter even further. Jesus is offensive. The disciples are trying to apologize for him. (laughs) Don't be like that, Jesus. That's not who people want you to be. That's not who we want you to be. And what does he say? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent to the sons of Jacob, that Jacob who you heard about in our Old Testament lesson. I was sent to his family. I was sent to call them to repentance because they have wandered away from the truth. That's who I was sent to, Jesus says. That's who I've come to heal, not this Canaanite woman. What claim does she have on the favor that is meant for God's people? The disciples are trying to get Jesus off the hook, which is something I think we so often try to do. We try to explain away the things that God does. We try to explain away the things that God says to us in the scriptures. We try to explain away the discipline that God delivers to us in this life. We explain it away, most of all, when we deny that we have surely deserved nothing but eternal punishment. That when we receive any goodness from God, it is because of his mercy and not because of our merits, not because we deserve it. That is the thing which grates most against our flesh. We want to deserve the things we have got. And we want to deserve more. We often think we do. The last place we want to find ourselves is in a position of deserving nothing and relying utterly on someone else, least of all, an almighty, righteous God. But that is who he is. An almighty, righteous God. And what he does is just and good, even when it is embarrassing even when it scandalizes us, even when others mock you for the things that your God says and does, when others make fun of you for believing all of that folly, nonetheless, that's who God is. It's who he says he is. If we were to shape him in our own image, then, of all people, we would have no hope whatsoever. Instead, we should take him for who he is. We should listen to who he is. And that's where the rest of this lesson is so valuable. Verse 25, the woman persists. Jesus has treated her contemptuously, not answering her, not even saying, uh, giving her the dignity to give her a response. He's just ignoring her, and she presses him. She comes forward insisting, Lord, help me. At this point, I think that everyone, every human on earth would be embarrassed into helping her. We would have to. How could you turn somebody like that away? How could you do anything else? But not only does Jesus not help her, But he turns to her and he insults her. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let that sink in. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I have come to give favor, Jesus says, to God's people, to the children of Israel, and you are not one of them. You are a dog. What justice would there be, Jesus says, in giving the food that belongs to the children and throwing it to the dogs? It would be a waste. It would be depriving the children. It would be bad parenting. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Why does he do that? Why does he insult her in this way? Why does he push the matter so hard? Why does he refuse to give her mercy? There is, of course, a chance 
that she is thinking about Jesus all wrong up to this point. That she, like you and I so often do, is shaping Jesus in her own image. And so maybe she thinks to herself that since she knows his name, he's the son of David, since she knows something about him, and he's capable of casting out demons, I've heard that he can do that before, maybe she thinks that all she has to do is come with some sort of an incantation, cry out to him saying the magic words, and then he will have to help her. That she can manipulate him into giving her what she wants. Maybe she thinks that he's some sort of a vending machine, that if she presses the right combination of buttons and has put in the right amount of cash, out comes the Snickers bar that she so desperately wants at this moment. Maybe that's what she thinks about Jesus. Maybe she has misunderstood who he is. Maybe she's there just because she wants something from him. Maybe she is pleading to him, calling for mercy. Maybe she trusts in him only if he's willing to give her what she wants. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever seen or heard those thoughts creep into your hearts? I'll trust in God so long as he gives me what I want. Have you ever heard that from the people in your lives? I'll put my faith in him. I'll believe in God so long as this works out in my favor, so long as it works out to my advantage. That is not faith. That is a kind of trust which actually the world, the world can produce very easily. The world is full of people who believe things that pay off. Why do people put their faith in money? Because it pays off. Why do people put their faith in health and youth? Because when it works, it pays off. Why do people put their faith in uh, success, in a good reputation, in favor among men? Why do people put their faith in those things? Because they can see results. We, by nature, trust in those things that can deliver and which we can see the results from. And we trust in them so long as they deliver, so long as they give us what we want. But that is not the faith that the Holy Spirit brings. The Holy Spirit does not give faith which demands that God give us things that we want, which is willing to trust in him only so long as he works to our advantage, towards our good pleasure. Faith instead trusts in God's good pleasure. Faith instead trusts that God, whatever he does, is good. And that if he chooses not to give us mercy, then it is a good choice and a righteous choice. Faith believes that God, being merciful to us apart from any merit, apart from deserving it at all, God being merciful to us is our only hope. And so it cries out to him whether or not he delivers. That's what true faith looks like. And you'll notice that it is impossible. How can anyone believe like that? How can anyone believe in God when he seems to be silent, when he seems to insult and reject you? How can anyone believe in someone like that? It is impossible. It is not the kind of faith that the world can produce. It is faith that is only wrought by the Holy Spirit. It is faith that can only come from God giving it to you. It is faith which is miraculous and otherworldly. Faith which is surprising beyond measure. This woman comes to Jesus and having been insulted by him, what does she do? She answers him in this most beautiful way. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. No, I am not a child. No, I am not among the people of Israel. No, I do not deserve anything 
My daughter deserves nothing. We deserve what we have. We deserve worse. Call me a dog. Call me worse. It doesn't matter because you are my only hope. My only hope is that you will be merciful to me. I have nothing to claim for myself. You're right. I don't deserve anything. Yet I know and believe that even the tiniest bit of your mercy, even the smallest crumb which accidentally falls off the table will be enough to satisfy me. Because she believes something about God which is truer than anything she can see. She believes something about God which is truer than the reaction she seems to get from Jesus in his silence and in his insult. She believes that he is good and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, something which she had no reason to believe. She's a Canaanite, and here Jesus is insulting her, and yet she believes it. How can she do that? By the Holy Spirit. That is the only way. She is not embarrassed by Jesus. She makes no objections. She doesn't say, I'm not willing to receive anything from you if it's how you're going to treat me, if you're not going to give me what I want. She is faithful, trusting in him, even if he does not give her what she wants. It reminds me of that beautiful story. I've mentioned it several times in sermons. It's such a helpful story about the three young men in the fiery furnace. The three men who worked in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that when the trumpet sounded, everyone would have to bow down and worship this big statue, this 90-foot-tall statue that he had built of gold. Of course, these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused. They refused because they worshipped the true God. They trusted in the true God. And the king called them before him. Nebuchadnezzar called them to come before him. And he said, look, all you've got to do is bow down and you'll be fine. But if you don't bow down, you're going to be tossed into the fiery furnace. And they said to him, O king, you're a fool. Throw us into the furnace. Our God can rescue us. Of course he can. Our God is the king of heaven and earth. Of course he can rescue us. But even if he does not, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. That, of course, made Nebuchadnezzar rage, and he heated the furnace seven times hotter than it usually is, so that the fellows who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they died because the flames were so hot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not care. They did not trust in God only if he would save them from the fire. They did not trust in God only if he gave them what pleased them or what they wanted or what they thought they needed. They trusted in God, period, because... Not only is he the maker of heaven and earth, but he is also merciful and kind. It's who he says he is. And he has never once broken his word. You know how the story ends. There they are, standing in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees a fourth person. And he says, who is that? Who is that? Didn't we throw three people into the furnace? He brings them out. And their clothes are unsinged. Their hair is all untouched. They don't even smell of smoke. And King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. He says, whoever it is that you worship, he is clearly the true God. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted in God without seeing the results, without being delivered, without being freed from their suffering, without having received what they wanted. They trusted in God because they knew who he was. That is the key for you and me today. Know who God is. When you come to him, pleading with him for mercy, for the suffering in your life, for the forgiveness of sins, know who he is. 
He is not a God made in your own image. He is not a Jesus like you and I would be. He is far better. He is a God who sent his son to die on the cross to forgive your sins. Not merely to rescue you from nicks and bruises. Not merely to rescue you from oppression by demons. Not merely to prevent you from dying, but to give you his life. Something far better than anything you could have asked for. Something far better than anything you would ever have hoped for. He is giving it to you. And that should tell you everything about who he is. That is how the Holy Spirit gives us faith, by showing us who God is and what he has done on the cross. He pours out his blood for you because he loves you. You who have no reason to think that God would ever love you. You who have no claim to God's favor, no claim to deserve anything from him. He loves you. Believe it. Believe it in spite of what you see in your lives, in spite of what you see in the world around you. Believe it. Do not claim anything for yourself. Put your trust in God alone. Come to him in faith, not because he is going to make life good for you, not because you expect him to deliver you from suffering, not because he's going to give you what you want, but because he is good and he is merciful and he is gracious. Come to him as this woman does. Take his insults. Take his scandal. Don't be embarrassed by him but press him, wrestle with him like Jacob wrestled with that angel, insisting on a blessing. Why? Not because you deserve it, but because he has promised it. His promises are eternal, and he has never once broken one. Put your trust in him. Look to the cross. Whenever you doubt, look to the cross. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and set your hope in his resurrection, in his life, which are yours. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.